What happens after we die? We know that eventually we'll be raised to life and spend eternity in the world to come, but what happens before that? What does the soul experience in the moments after death? To answer this question, you'd have to talk to someone who died and came back to life. Well, it turns out there are millions of people who claim to have experienced just that. Messiah Podcast is brought to you by First Fruits of Zion, providing Messianic Jewish teaching for Christians and Jews. Put your hand and mind together. We will walk in harmony. Let me introduce you to my teacher, the rabbi from the Galilee. Welcome back to Messiah Podcast Selects. Today we'll be reading an article from the hot off the first Fruits of Zion Press, Messiah Magazine, issue number 27. And this article is about NDEs, or near-death experiences. I'm here with my co-host, Damian Eisner. How are you doing, Damian? Howdy. I'm good. I'm feeling very alive today as we prepare to discuss near-death Yeah, yeah. Talking about this stuff makes you appreciate um, not being almost dead. Um, As (laughs) amazing as these experiences are. (laughs) There is a a very, very strong bit of uh, strong truth to what you just said, though, because, you know, with the magazine and and Heidi Barr's Barr's interview and article and all this, I really, it really has caused me to give this a lot of thought. And it is, it's a unique, uh, it's a unique world and it's a very big world. Nine million reported near-death experiences in the United States alone. There's a lot. Yeah, people don't uh, talk about it really that much, but it does seem to happen quite a bit. I wonder if people are afraid to share their experiences. Well, that's a very real thing because, and and I've from the research I've done, uh, most people are afraid because if they have one of these, they share it with someone, a loved one, a parent, a spouse. They're treated as completely nuts, and then they never say it again until they find yeah. someone who they might be able to relate to in that, which is usually someone who had another, who had a near death experience. So yeah, there's a lot of like, this gets suppressed. Yeah. Well, our boss, uh, Dan Lancaster, the director of education for first fruit design took an interest in this topic and he has written this fantastic article called what happens when we die. And he's explored this phenomenon, so we'll get right into the reading here, and then afterward we can talk about it a little bit. Sounds great. If you want to know the Jewish Jesus, don't miss out on a free subscription to Messiah Magazine, where you'll discover his life and teaching, learn about the biblical festivals, and get connected with Israel. Subscribe for free at messiahmagazine.org. Messiah Magazine is a free, donation-supported quarterly publication of First Fruits of Zion. What Happens When You Die by D. Thomas Lancaster What happens after you die? I'm not asking about resurrection. Believers in Jesus know that there will certainly be a resurrection of the dead— That's also one of the fundamental beliefs of Judaism. 
But the state of the dead until the resurrection seems a little murky. Too bad we can't interview the twelve-year-old girl from Capernaum, the young man from Nain, Lazarus of Bethany, or Tabitha of Joppa. What did you see? Do you remember anything from beyond? But we don't need to go back to Bible times. Many people alive today claim to have endured death and returned to life. Such an event is called a near-death experience, or NDE. Is there any truth to such reports? Here's the premise of an NDE. A person undergoes clinical death. All neurological activity stops, but then, somehow, the person revives. The brain reboots. Medically speaking, while the brain flatlines, the person should have been entirely unconscious. No dreams, thoughts, memories, or awareness. Not until the neurons started firing again and brain activity resumed. A significant percentage of people, however, recall extraordinary phenomena, leaving their bodies, feeling a sensation of peace and bliss, being greeted by departed relatives, traveling through a tunnel toward a divine light, seeing heavenly fields with indescribable colors, encountering divine beings, often Jesus himself, undergoing a life review experiencing a sense of transcendent oneness with all things, and sometimes even entering the divine presence of God. Is this for real? Skepticism has rarely steered me wrong. It's appropriate that my middle name is Thomas. When I first heard of near-death experiences, I discounted them, thinking, maybe people experience some hallucinations as the feverish dream of a dying brain. Scientists suggest that the oxygen-starved brain releases a cocktail of endorphins and hallucinogenic chemicals that create a sensation of blissful peace, the illusion of having left the body, and other psychedelic experiences. It turns out there's no evidence to support that theory. It's only one out of an impressive number of theories medical science has proffered for what happens inside the brain to create an NDE. None of the theories have been tested or verified, and none can explain the phenomenon. Despite my skepticism, one story impressed me a lot. My wife and I had a Jewish friend who grew up in a primarily secular family. She told us that when she was five years old, a car struck her in the street and dragged her the length of a city block. They rushed her by ambulance to the hospital and placed her on life support. Strict Jewish law prohibits unplugging, so she slept in a vegetative, comatose state for several weeks. Then, completely unexpectedly, the five-year-old woke up and told everyone that she had been to heaven. She had met the prophet Elijah, and he had even led her by the hand back to her body. In 2015, I heard another story that made me rethink my skepticism. Fifteen-year-old Nathan claimed to have left his body while lying sick in bed. He ascended to paradise, underwent a life review before a heavenly court, had a series of mystical encounters in heavenly places, and saw frightening visions of the future. I watched an interview with him and read a translation of the Hebrew transcript. I was impressed with how closely his experiences corresponded with biblical prophecy, Jewish eschatology, and Jewish mysticism, how could a typical 15-year-old kid from a marginally observant Israeli family who had never studied Torah in any depth 
describe things that only a scholar could have derived from a serious study of arcane Jewish texts, augmented by deep-level familiarity with the New Testament. The History of the NDE Reports of -of out-of-body, near-death experiences have been around as long as human beings have. They come from every culture, regardless of religion. The earliest example in Western literature comes from Plato, who relates the story of a Pamphylian warrior slain in battle and left to rot on the battlefield. They were about to burn his corpse on a funeral pyre when he awoke and described a typical NDE involving common elements such as leaving one's body, seeing others who are deceased, facing a judgment and life review, beautiful visions that cannot be expressed in human language, and reward for the righteous and punishment for the wicked. Similar stories appear here and there, but the phenomenon remained obscure until 1960 when the American Heart Association introduced physicians to a medical breakthrough called cardiopulmonary resuscitation, CPR. Once doctors started pulling people back from death, reports from beyond the ken of mortal man became common. By 1975, physicians coined the term near-death experience to describe what their patients were reporting. Medical data indicates that nearly 20% of people who survive clinical death during a cardiac arrest will remember an out-of-body experience. The statistics suggest that as many as 750 people in the United States of America will have that experience within the next 24 hours. Common Elements of the Experience The reports of the experience come from all over the world, but they are all remarkably similar. If the NDE is just a hallucination of random dreams created by a flood of chemicals from an oxygen-starved brain, it seems strange that the hallucinations share so much consistency from person to person. Experiencers object to the hallucination or dream explanation. They describe the experience as more real than reality. The world of souls makes this present reality, by comparison, seem like it's the hallucination. The typical experience begins with confusion. They first notice that all sensation of pain has vanished, and then they notice someone's body below them, prone on the floor or on the emergency room table or whatever the case may be. It's surprising and disorienting to see yourself from the outside. What's going on? Is that me? One fellow remarked. I saw myself lying on the floor, and I remember thinking, I thought I was a better-looking guy than that. In many cases, the survivors describe watching the medical teams work on them, and they can accurately retell all that happened. Things look sharper and clearer. People born blind report seeing for the first time. The unchained mind works faster, making multiple observations simultaneously, It's possible to see through walls or to be simultaneously in a different place. Time and space fall away as irrelevant. The experiencers often describe slipping into a dark void, seeing a light in the distance, moving rapidly as if falling or being rushed along through a tunnel toward an ever-brightening divine light. Most report a euphoric sense of peace, bliss, perfect contentment, and unconditional love. They encounter deceased relatives, sacred figures, and angelic beings, and they communicate with them inaudibly, without words, 
thought to thought. At some point in the experience, the experiencer might undergo a life review, not unlike the common saying, I saw my life flash before my eyes. Many report an almost instantaneous, yet complete reliving of every moment of their lives, not just from his or her own eyes, but also through the perspectives of others involved, for good or ill. Some experience a flood of knowledge about the nature of the universe and the meaning of life. Some report conversations with God himself. Some receive the option of staying or returning to the body. Others are told they must go back because they have left some mission unfinished. The Life I Now Live The near-death experience suggests an afterlife awaits us, whether we like it or not. Consciousness survives. The soul lives on, and it must give an account. Not all NDEs are pleasant. Terrifying, hellish NDEs get reported too. Not everyone has a good trip, and many people come back to admit that they did not go into the light. People who undergo these experiences are not necessarily religious, but the experience transforms their perspectives on life, death, the afterlife, and spirituality. Priorities are completely upended, and the survivors no longer show much interest in the successes and pleasures of materialism. They discover that life is more about how we treat one another, loving our neighbor as ourselves. If that's the takeaway from death, we shouldn't need to pass through the veil to start living now as if we already have. As Paul teaches, we are to regard ourselves as if we have already died and been resurrected. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 In other words, all disciples of Yeshua are to live as if we have already undergone the near-death experience. Torah Club is the world's fastest-growing Messianic Jewish Bible study. You can start or join a club today at TorahClub.org. Know Jesus better through an in-depth small group Bible study and fellowship with other like-minded disciples. Start a club or join a club at TorahClub.org. Torah Club is where disciples learn. Well, that certainly gives a lot of food for thought, reading about that, particularly hearing about skepticism, because I can relate to that as well. This is, and, and you know what? I think, Jacob, a lot, of, a lot of religious people, particularly Western religion Christians, think poorly of this subject matter. What do you, what, what's your take on that? Yeah. No, I think you're right. I think there's been, you know, for better or worse, the enlightenment, the scientific mind that we're expected to cultivate, even as disciples of Jesus, I think growing up in Western culture, the default is to be dismissive of any kind of spiritual experience or any kind of mystical experience, something that something that can be maybe plausibly explained in some other way than resorting to, oh, I, you know, I died and saw God or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, we tend to go for the scientific explanation, I think. Which brings up a great quote I read from the 
Um, it's from Scientific American. I think that's a magazine, but this was a podcast, I believe. And here was, the, of course, this was being very critical because science is very critical of near-death experiences. Um, yeah. This is this is nothing but, you know, the shutdown of the brain or pathology. Um, something Something's happening that can be explained on a physiological, biochemical, cellular level. And so that's all it is. That's what science says a lot. But here was this quote that I found so interesting. The reason people turn to supernatural explanations is that the mind abhors a vacuum of explanation. Okay. Mm. So he, but the thing is, he's, he's criticizing his own perspective as well. Yes. People turn to supernatural explanations because they can't find another one. But but science rejects all supernatural explanations because they you know it's it's that also is it, they they abhor a vacuum. So if there's something supernatural, nope, we got to figure that out, and it's got to be absolutely science. It couldn't have anything to do with God. There's no way. Yeah, that's the scientific yeah. um, cop out. Yeah, well, it reminds me of like James Randi, right? Like this guy had a million dollar prize for anyone who could demonstrate that they had supernatural powers. Uh, so he would have Uri Geller on or somebody who, who thought they could bend a spoon with their mind or move stuff uh, mm -hmm. with their mind. And, and he would have them do it. And then he would, uh, he, he would be like, okay, now can you bend my spoon that I just brought? <laughs> Does it have to be uh, your spoon? And all right. of a sudden, you know, oh, the psychic waves are interfering. And I can't uh, right. do it anymore. Right. Um, and I thought about what, what would someone like him do? If you wanted to test the veracity of these NDEs, and I think that's that's sort of part of the problem here, is you almost have to take somebody's word for it. Right. It, there's there's no way you can't put a camera in someone's soul as they float away and then come back and and watch the the video recording. There's it's it's an experience one person has. It's hard to get independent verification for any individual case. Well, you're right, and I am. I am trying to be very objective in this podcast because I am actually, I don't know, neither mm. do you, neither does, you know, anyone who's listening now, of course, people who've had this experience, they absolutely know, you know, that's, it's their yeah. personal experience. And I think there is a, there is a growing number of of scientists, physicians, neurologists, all kinds of people who are trying to do studies that that are demonstrating both cardiac death and brain death. But there's a huge amount of difficulty. I watched a panel of five physicians um, for about an hour and a half arguing with one another about what is death. These are not these are not people who died. It's important to understand that they're near death experiences. That's what one of them said. You know, no one comes back from being dead. When your brain dies and the and the 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 cells begin to basically explode in your brain, you can't get them back. That's what this physician was saying. Yeah. So there are really academic and and pretty compelling. It, arguments and discussions going on in science. I think we are going to continue to find out more and more about what is actually happening here. Yeah. 
so there will be some growing bit of evidence on, and of course it'll be on both sides, which doesn't yeah. help us at all. No. Well, you're, you're a congregational leader, right? And, and some of these experiences people have, um, they, they don't come back, but they do describe the first bits of some of the stories we hear from NDEs. They describe um, to someone in the room there who's, who's with them as they're dying, they might say, oh, I see aunt so-and-so is here, or I see my grandfather is here and they've come to right. receive me. And then they, they die and they don't come back. But it's a commonality that you see with reports of NDEs because they come back and wake up and say, oh, I saw a departed loved one, or I saw Jesus or, um, you know, someone familiar. Um, you, as a congregational leader, have, have you ever been with someone who is, who's reported, um, these kind of things going on? Well, I have I have spoken with someone who had a near-death experience. I've also spoken with the relatives of people who actually died, who explained some really, you know, unique, interesting things. And one of them was seeing the same types of experiences that the near-death people have people in the room and, and loved ones and love and light and all these, all these similar components. And there are across the board, universally similar components, regardless of whether you're in China, India, Christian, atheist, you know, it doesn't matter. And yeah. And I think the similarities are, I mean, and so, to some degree, I think a lot more interesting than the differences. Yeah, absolutely. There, they seem that seems to be the verifiable, the verifiable thing. There's a, there's a, there's a. It's called a questionnaire by an English. It's a survey, the Grayson questionnaire. I don't know if you've come across that in anything you were reading. It's, it's the questionnaire of the near death experiences and the similarities that that are that you find there are just absolutely striking, really, really amazing. You know, the tunnel is very familiar, the tunnel going down the tunnel, but in India, yeah, in India, that doesn't show up very often, hmm. which I didn't really stick around for the explanation. I just found that to be interesting. There is some clearly some cultural influence in what people see. Yeah. Which is, Almost harder to explain than if it weren't, because what is uh, if if uh, everyone goes down the same tunnel or everyone has their own tunnel or whatever, you you would expect that to be something that that would show up in every report of these right. experiences. But instead, what people see seems to be—I don't know whether to say it's uh, filtered or whether it's an experience sort of tailored for them. Um, a lot of people see what you would think they'd expect to see. Like, um, they thought this didn't happen with, with Muslims or with people in, in Iraq or wherever it was. I think it was Iran that they ended up doing the study, but then they figured out they were just asking the wrong questions and they found it's, it's not hard to find people, uh, you know, Muslims who have had these experiences. What, what happens to them? Well, they come back as more devout Muslims because whatever they saw confirmed what, what a Muslim might expect to see in the afterlife. Same with Jewish people. They'll, They'll see something that's in concert with, um, with Jewish tradition about what happens after someone dies, with some exceptions. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> once in a while, once in a while, you'll find a Jewish person who sees Jesus or something like that. But right, I've, I'm um, familiar with one of those stories. Yeah, yeah, 
And then, um, you know, Christians, we have lots of experiences of Christians. The, the Seven Minutes in Heaven book uh, was super popular. I think that probably introduced this topic to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, how, so, so all of that to say, it makes it sort of plausible to, to discount those experiences to some degree. Of course, everyone's going to want to discount everyone else's experiences. The Christians aren't going to want to say, oh, the, the, the Jews and Muslims are also getting these nice happy fluffy reunions with god however the the uh, chink in the armor there is atheists atheists have these experiences mm-hmm. and these experiences do not validate the worldview of an atheist person and as as i was talking to dan about this phenomenon what he told me was it's, it's pretty rare for an atheist to survive one of these and remain an atheist right you know, I want to talk about the skeptics again here for just a second because it's clearly an atheist would be pretty skeptical that this is anything but a brain brain dying function. But I, I heard a physician make this really interesting point that if this were purely a physiological problem of a, a dying brain, everyone should report something very similar to this. In other words, every person who ha- who who approaches death and comes back mm. should report the same thing if it's a physiological function of your dying process then it would be universal like her example was if a, if a if a leg is broken i understand the pathology of that and it's you know the the break may be in some other bone in in some other part of the bone or there may be some unique situation but it's always going to be a broken leg. If this may, if if my if I'm making sense here, the point being, a lot of people do not have these experiences. Yeah, yeah. So that that scientific explanation of well, when you're dying, your this your happens. brain gets fl- flooded with DMT or whatever. Right. I've never read a report of someone taking loads of DMT and nothing happened. There, there should always be something happening. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And interestingly, I saw they're doing. They're like using DMT in England, doing some study to try to simulate death and near near death experiences. DMT is a drug, wow. right? Like a psychedelic. It's um, as far as I understand, it it can be taken as a drug, but it's also a chemical produced in the body. Okay. Okay. Well, continuing my skeptic discussion here. Here is the thing that has been the most compelling to the to the physicians particularly neurologist cardiovascular surgeons intensive care physicians who are who are involved in quote bringing people back to life when they are undergoing when they've undergone cardiac arrest is the out of body experience which is reported very 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 commonly in near death experiences floating above standing beside i heard one neurologist who was a skeptic say interesting to note they're never underneath hmm. they're always above or beside but his point was well that happens in that happens in fainting um, situations as well, where you have, and, and it was this complicated explanation about the move from regular brain function. Something similar happens when you're going into REM sleep, and I'm not going to get into any of that, but he was discounting it completely. Out of body mm. experiences do not require a near death experience, was his point. But when the person out of body then moves through the wall, 
and can hear the conversations going throughout the hospital and can recount these things or can then tell their surgeon how they resuscitated them and the very you know complicated medical procedure that really throws talk about chinks in the armor of the scientific defense that does pose a very serious problem they see things they can recount things that there's no possible way because they measure the cardiac function and the brain function and they're both shut down and yet consciousness is there they're there yeah yeah and and are there situations where people come back as you mentioned i mean it's one thing to say that um you know i know how the surgeon brought me back but hearing hearing conversations that they wouldn't have been able to hear with their normal ears and you know that may, that causes me to think of the of this question what about someone who can't see if someone who can't see um all of a sudden in a near-death experience is able to to see the room around them or or see anything at all that would be fairly compelling wouldn't it you're saying a blind person blind yeah, a person who birth. can't yeah a person who can't see at all yeah i guess uh it would probably have to be blind from birth right because someone who who is blinded later in life would um would remember what it's like to see and there are plenty of stories about that there are studies done on blind people there are also unfortunately some um, lies. They're just straight oh. up plain old lies that the people weren't blind or whatever. So it's very, mm. and that's another problem. Remember the book about the little kid who said he went and died, to, went, died and went to heaven and saw God and all that. And then he yeah. it was a lie. What was that book? I don't remember it. You know what I'm talking about though? Yeah. Let me, um, well, that's totally the problem. That's a that's a big problem in this in this world is that people do make things up, and so it makes it kind of hard to, you know, put a lot of legitimacy in it. But when you have, as we said in the introduction, nine million just in the United States, it's kind of hard to discount it, too. Yeah. I think the book is called um, 90 Minutes in Heaven, although I think earlier in the podcast I referred to it as 7 Minutes in Heaven, which is the name of a, a high school kissing game. So, um, <laughs> oh, all right. I don't remember that one. But you know I didn't what? get to play it either, Damien. Oh, okay. Well, we were nerds. <laughs> um, we, were, we, were, we were reading books about, you know, the Lord of the Rings and things. Yeah. Oh, Heaven is for Real. That's another one. Heaven is for real. Okay. Well, that brings up a tremendous thing that ha- that I've thought a lot about. Wasn't able to identify a lot of Jewish near-death experiences, but I do find this similarity that in most of these experiences, heaven is reported. Mm. Okay. Heaven. I in in some way I saw something beautiful. Um, some people hear songs some people see mountains they see gardens and and incredible descriptions of this heavenly place they're met by spiritual beings all these sometimes jesus sometimes god but i began to think about the kingdom on earth versus going to heaven when you die which we talk Mm. a lot about and so does jesus by the way yeah so I want to, I'm curious if you gave any thought to this because 
it it kind of it undoes these testimonies undo a lot of that if when we die magically we float up to the clouds into the light walk down a tunnel and walk into a beautiful garden with you know beautiful birds playing singing mozart um it, it it's quite a bit different than the idea of well the kingdom on earth mm-hmm. i have a thought but i want to hear your thought first well Judaism, obviously, it believes in a bodily resurrection. So after the bodily resurrection, there's, you know, um, the world to come, or you have the messianic kingdom, this this physical manifestation, this reality. I seem to recall a Bible verse that um, when Jesus comes, he comes with his saints. So mm-hmm. maybe it's possible that we temporarily join him in some heavenly state, and then at the resurrection, we come back on earth. Mm-hmm. That is my, that's my thought. And I'm thinking more along the lines of though, though the rich man and Lazarus is something, you know, very misunderstood and taken out of context. There is a reference to Abraham's bosom. That's not just in the new Testament. That's a Jewish concept for sure. Mm-hmm. That I could I could go with the idea that not that we've arrived in heaven and that's where we're going to stay seated on the clouds with the angels, but that possibly this place is that beautiful place, Abraham's bosom, where we repose until the resurrection, until that soul that that left. And I don't want to get too much into the terminology because it can get it can get confusing and inaccurate, uh, at least in the what people are hearing, but that your essence is with God until Yeshua comes, the kingdom is restored, we live in the messianic age, and then at the end of that is some kind of miraculous, real, heavenly thing that's called the world to come. But again, all of that is happening on earth whether it's this existing restored kingdom earth or whether it is the quote new Jerusalem descending. So Mm. I think there's still, since this is a messianic Jewish podcast, I think it's still (laughs) important to keep the kingdom and that perspective, even in mind as you're looking and thinking about floating off to heaven when you die. And, And what do you think? Yeah, I think the New Testament's pretty clear that there's going to be a resurrection. I mean, there's wherever people go after they die, whether it's good or bad, it's not permanent because there's a resurrection. Daniel says this, everyone comes back from the dead, everyone faces the judgment, mm-hmm. and then everyone gets whatever's coming to them next. And you know, this happens it brings us all back. It, it must bring us back from wherever we go. So it's it's like a holding tank, right? It's like a temporary place. Wherever souls go when they die now has got to be a temporary place. Yeah. And you touched on something that is also going to be challenging, which I want to approach delicately. Yeah. Do you know what I'm do you know what I want to approach? I think so. It's, can, you, uh, can you read so, my mind? What do you think I want to approach? I think that uh the stories of the the kind of person who gets to go to a good and happy and heavenly place um, 
don't that, that, that those uh, people don't necessarily match up with what everyone would expect to be the kind of person who gets to, to go to heaven when they die. Exactly. Um, in other words, there are people who have never walked the sawdust trail, kneeled at the altar, and accepted Jesus into their heart, but yet for some reason they see a heavenly place when they encounter this uh, near-death experience. Yeah, that's challenging. Uh, it's challenging. It is. And I think, like I said before, everyone's going to want to discount all the near-death experiences people have that don't fit with their theology. And everyone is, not everyone, but a lot of people will be happy to accept the ones that do, that, that accord with their theology. But you mentioned the rich man and Lazarus, and I think that's actually a fairly interesting chapter to read in light of this. This is in Luke chapter 16. And we, everyone knows the parable. There's a rich man. He has everything he wants. He wears nice clothes, lives in a big house, and he dies and goes to a place of burning fire. And at his gate is this guy, um, Lazarus, Eliezer, who had nothing good ever happened to him. He's covered in sores. He's starving to death. And he dies, and he gets to go to a really nice place with Abraham, called mm -hmm. Abraham's bosom. Mm -hmm. But um, the the part of the chapter that should hit us like a ton of bricks is when Abraham explains why they went to their respective places. Uh, Abraham tells the rich guy, "Well, your life was pretty good, so you get you get a bad ending." Right. And uh, meanwhile, meanwhile, Lazarus's life was terrible, so he gets to go to the good place. I mean. Anyone whose life is even remotely comfortable would feel uh, pangs of of worry, I would think, at this parable. And it's easy to it's easy to let our theology um, eclipse the parable, and our, it's easy to let our theology tell us, "No, you're fine. Um, don't worry about that parable." But we're followers of Jesus, and I think we have to take it, him seriously when he talks about this stuff. Um, I think maybe we've overlooked this parable in Christian theology. I mean, I don't know. What do you think? Well, that parable is used only primarily to describe going to heaven or hell. And in my Jewish assessment of that parable, that has very little to do with it. It is hmm. about, it's about how you do all of the really important things that Yeshua told you to do about loving your hmm. neighbor and taking care of people. And that was, that was the rich man's, that was his his downfall. You got this poor man here, and you have all of this luxury, and you do nothing. You walk by him, you ignore him, you wear your fine robes. Mm. You know, yeah, and that's the kingdom perspective too. I mean, as far as bringing the kingdom into reality today, in some way, to the extent that we uh, fail to do that, and to the extent that we use our resources to just make ourselves comfortable and happy. Um, you know, maybe, maybe Jesus has a warning there for us, but I think you're right. And that the point of the parable is not details about the afterlife. The point of the parable is what are we doing now? Well, and my point continued, would continue to say, how relevant is that to some of the reports of these near-death experiences where someone mm. actually doesn't, I mean, they may or may not meet Yeshua. Some people do again, referencing Heidi Barr, didn't know Jesus, had no reason to know Yeshua, was Jewish, mm. grew up in a Jewish, secular, atheist home, 
and yet he shows up and he he didn't really tell her you need to accept me as lord and savior and again i want to be real real careful here cuz i'm not suggesting anything don't hear me say something i'm not saying um, I believe there is one way to the Father, and it is through Yeshua. I think there's a lot of really complicated, way beyond us things that we may not understand about that, but I do believe that foundationally. And hmm. b- but but these people come back differently. They they come back and they act differently. They act more like the rich man should have acted while he was on earth. There's yeah. a corrective across cultures. There's a corrective. You were mentioning it earlier with the, you know, coming back as a better Muslim. But even atheists sometimes they come back as better people. Yeah, they, they ju- not that all atheists are bad people. That's not my suggestion. But they come back with a with a new perspective, and Yeshua brings it out of them. Hmm in 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 these experiences which might explain why not everyone has them i don't know we talked about that earlier too it is conceivable that god could choose who he wants to communicate with through this if he's doing it yeah i think it's it's very very easy when we start doing theology to constrain God, to say, oh, God's not allowed to do this. He's not allowed to do that. He's not allowed to talk to those people. Um, and that just seems, I mean, it's just such an easy trap to fall into, to to take that agency away from God and to take it a lot of times for ourselves. I, I'm reminded by something Amy Jill Levine wrote. She's a Jewish person who studies the new Testament knows a lot about it, but is not a believer in Jesus. Mm-hmm. But, um, she was talking about the sheep and goat judgment where everyone goes before Jesus mm-hmm. and he decides, um, he's the one who separates the sheep from the goats. And her point was like, look, if you're reading this and you think that my, that, uh, because I'm a Jewish person who doesn't believe in Jesus, that I'm going to go to hell. All I would say is go back and read what he, what Jesus said about this and realize that he's the one who gets to decide. Mm-hmm. Jesus is the one who's given the authority to decide who goes where. And it's real easy to forget that and to say, oh, Jesus is only allowed to uh, to pick me and the people who, who are, uh, you know, who, who the criteria I've decided are the ones that, that uh, should be the criteria, rather than just trusting God for this, trusting that he's given the right person the authority to make that decision, and then trusting in our Messiah that he's going to do what's right. I mean, it was that's one of my favorite Bible verses is, um, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Mm. We have to trust that whatever God does, that's going to be right. And I think we sometimes get a little bit too, uh, we point our finger at God and we say, no, no, you're not allowed to, all those people have to go to hell, right? You're not allowed to do anything different with them. Um, it's not really, it's, I, I don't feel personally that it's my place to say anything like that. I don't know about you. Uh, well, I don't say that because I don't know. Um, and that is, I know that's going to be very, very problematic for some people, but I, I, let me just speak to it from this point of view. And this, this has nothing to do with near death experiences. It has to do with something much heavier that we're talking about right now. But the idea of quote, Jewish evangelism through the years, you know, I've been to church when I was growing up. Go, going to church with my friends 
when I spent the night on a Saturday night getting up because their family goes to church and I go to church and I sit there and I hear about, you know, Jews burning in hell. And I remember a conversation talking to the dad, one of my friend's dads about it. So, you know, have your, have your relatives died? How do you feel about them, you know, burning in hell? Does that, does that make you want to make a choice for Jesus? I was like, Hmm. God, no, I don't want to do that. (laughs) And, and so my point in all of that is I did be, I, Yeshua, did speak to me later in my life. He, 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 I had a, uh, Paul revelation, I guess I'll never forget it. I remember it as a side note. Remember that when Yeshua appeared to Paul, he did not present the gospel to him. That was, that was someone else's job. Yeshua got his attention and Paul said, Oh wow. And then I'm going to go see this Ananias guy. And then he's going to tell me what I need to do. Paul had a choice. I heard John Burke, who's a very big Christian NDE guy talking about this. And, and I, I appreciated it. Paul had the choice after his vision to decide whether he would choose Yeshua or not. I mean, you know, mm. Yeshua didn't give him the, he didn't give him the Romans road. Uh, because he hadn't written it yet. No. Uh, anyway, back to my back to my um, point is the idea of telling Jews they're going to burn in hell has failed miserably as an evangelistic outreach. Yeah, sheep and goats and doing what you did for the least of these you did to me has proven to be a much much more valuable approach to quote evangelism meaning sharing the good news. So Mm. that's what I'm going to say about that. Well said, Damien. Let the reader, let the reader understand, let the listener understand. No. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's easy to forget also that our primary takeaway from the teachings of Jesus is, um, what, what he speaks to our heart about what we need to do. I mean, the gospel demands a response from the people who hear it and understand it. And that's our, our responsibility is to respond to that. It's, it's not so much um, trying to figure out what's going on with everybody else, so much as it, as it, as it is um, letting God's word convict us of what our next step right. needs to be. I know that sounds kind of individualistic, but um, I think it works in the collective as well. It works in the community. It works in the church. Where I think it may stop working is when, um, we try to go beat everyone else over the head with oh, how, why haven't you gotten this yet? Uh, kind of yeah. attitude. And I, I'm I'm continuing to maybe I'm maybe I'm being um, reactionary or dramatic here, but but I imagine some of our listeners struggling with what you just said, uh, as if to say, well, they're they're completely dismissing any idea of sharing the gospel or, you know, they're, they're just saying, well, let, let God will sort it out and Jesus will judge it. And that's the way it's going to go. We don't have anything to do. That is not at all what, what we're saying in any way, you know? No, it's not. Yeah. It's a, it's another instance of just saying one thing is important. Doesn't mean that another thing is not important. Yeah. We, but our our, our goal is still to make disciples, but um, making disciples is a whole process. I mean, making disciples can take a long time. Making disciples, you know, getting someone to believe what you're saying, to to put their 
faith in Jesus, to repent of their sins, all of this stuff, it's, uh, it's not easily done. It's often not properly done. And honestly, a lot of times the first thing uh, people hear us say doesn't make them want to keep listening right. to us. Right. Well, and particularly, um, I can speak from experience to Jewish people. Many of the Jewish people that I have introduced to Yeshua who became disciples, that that was a long process, you know? It really was. It, it just wasn't. I, at the same time, I know people who had a, a transformative, miraculous experience. They read something, someone shared something with them, and that was it. They never looked back, and they became disciples. So the whole point and everything there is, guess what? We don't know how God does it, and so we do what we yeah. can do. But I'll, bringing it back to the subject matter, pardon us, pardon us, oh, listeners, yeah. for rambling on. It's a podcast. We're just having fun here, but there are some pretty big things. Um, the near-death experience has proven to make disciples out of people who might not have been disciples prior to. So there's some value in that, I'm, yeah. I'm certain. And, and I heard a lady, again, a physician, I just sort of defaulted to, to hearing physicians talk about these experiences, but she had a 30-minute drowned experience, trapped under a kayak um, for 15 wow. minutes and then 15 minutes to resuscitate her. But they, she explained in detail her, her experience. But what she said that really struck me is, I remember every single detail of that as if it were yesterday. And I didn't share it for years because, you know, she said, I didn't want to come back and I didn't want my kids to mm. hear me say that. So I didn't tell anybody about this for years. But even now talking about it some 25 years later, I remember every single detail of that. And she was saying, this is not a recollection it is so much more qualitatively different than a recollection or just mm. some memory. The details are etched in stone forever in the brain. I think about Heidi Barr's story. Again, I keep referencing her just because she's in the magazine with her article. We did a, do, doing a podcast with her, but there's the something unique. And I would, can I say, seemingly supernatural about these events that, cannot be whether you agree with it whether you say that's hogwash whether you say that's you know witchcraft or whether you say that's science there's something going on here that we might have to chalk up to god being involved in and the mystery of of things we don't know yeah well said there's something happening and even if we're not sure how much of it we trust or how many of the details make sense to us. If people are coming back, you know, it reminds me again, when Jesus was having a conversation with a, a Pharisee or a ruler or somebody, and uh, he ended up saying, you're not far from the mm -hmm. kingdom. I think people coming back from these experiences more likely to follow Jesus, uh, what Jesus identified as this second most important commandment to love mm -hmm. other people. I mean, it's a step closer to the kingdom. I think we can always celebrate it when people take a step closer to yeah. the kingdom. Love. That, that to me, is the most profound element of all of these experiences. There are a lot, as we talked about, there's, there's commonality across cultures. There's 
light and tunnel and all that, but, but love, love is the defining component. That's what they don't want to leave a love. I cannot put into words, uh, the arms wrapped mm-hmm. around me and all of the anthropomorphisms of, of this, this manifested love, but they bring that back. And that also to me seems supernatural. They, they, not all, I couldn't, there's no, there's no universal thing in this area, but a lot of people are very positively affected and it's the love. And so God is love. God is light. There's all these, you know, these things. Yeah. And I'm sure that there are people who find it difficult to cultivate love for others and maybe they need a heavy dose. Maybe they need to to feel it from God in a in, in an extraordinary or supernatural or powerful way before they really get it. Like, oh, okay, this is this is what I'm supposed to pay forward to the other people. Yeah, in my and it's life. real. It becomes real. We didn't talk at all about the hellish mm-hmm. experiences. Um, I know those are real too, but I'll just we'll do that some other time. Sure. Well, they certainly have their impact on the they people sure who come do. back. They sure do. I think, so what's your takeaway? What's, what's your main, what's your exit point here as we, as we close out? I think, well, as I was talking to um, Daniel Lancaster about this, the, the author of the article, um, what he said that really stuck with me was, this is the closest thing we have to evidence for the existence of the mm-hmm. soul. The fact that so many of these things happen and so many of them contain elements that are real hard to explain scientifically, like hearing conversations while brain dead, stuff like that. It's there's there's too much there to completely dismiss. So even if we if we cut out everything that's different about all these experiences and only take what's in common, it really does make you think, well, something does happen after we die. There's it's not like nothing happens after we something definitely happens after yeah. we die. More than your brain shutting down. <laughs> yeah. I have been I have been affected. I I haven't really spent much time thinking about this. As a matter of fact, probably I would say I lean toward the skeptic and scientific side before we really before my job required me to move into studying these things. Uh, but it but it has affected me because of what you just said. Mm. It does provide to me some type of of quote tangible that I know that's hardly uh, the right word to use, but it's just made me appreciate that this world, this world is to be enjoyed. And, and I know we hear that from a lot of these NDE people too. They, they do, they didn't want to leave, but they do come back and they say, and I'm going to enjoy every single moment I have in this world because I'm going, I know I'm going somewhere great, but this world is great too. And I, I had this weird mm. um, comparison that this is, I was walking through the woods thinking about, I love to go to airports. Oh, I yeah. love airports. I love watching all the people, sometimes getting into conversations with people from all over the world. There are good restaurants in airports and, you know, the oh, miracle, sure. the miracle of airplanes and everything and and the excitement of getting ready to go somewhere i love to go to the airport 
but I don't want to stay mm. at the airport. Actually, I'm there for a reason, mm. and I want to go on the trip. You know, and 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 I'm when we go on the trip, we're going to get on this miraculous, almost inexplicable piece of technology that weighs tons and flies up into the air and does all these things. And so my weird way of thinking is life is an airport. This life is an airport. I'm going to enjoy it. But man, we have a destination and and a seemingly miraculous way that we're going to get there. Um, It is miraculous what Yeshua has done and, and the fact that we're getting on his plane Yeshua is my co-pilot. No, he's not. He's the pilot. And uh, mm. I just, I'm, this, has, this has transformed my way of thinking a little bit and really given me something to ponder and to potentially be super excited about, more excited about what's next. Yeah, yeah I think it's in Perkei Avot. This, the, uh, one of the rabbis said, this room is just... It's like the mm-hmm. waiting room, or it's just a, a room where you prepare to go into the house. We're not in yeah. the house yet. So uh, to use your airport analogy, the days of paying $17.50 for a panini are <laughs> are coming to right. an end, and eventually we will get to uh, our destination where we can do a little grocery correct, shopping. Correct, correct, correct. All right, good discussion. Enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. Sorry, we're back. We both just had, we both just went into cardiac arrest and had a near death experience. <laughs> At the same time. And now, now we're back and we want to share what we just experienced. No. Well, thanks for joining us here today on Messiah Podcast. An interesting discussion, a thought provoking discussion. We're just a couple of guys. Don't take any of it too seriously. But thanks for listening. And tune in next time for another episode from Messiah Podcast. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Messiah Podcast, where Jesus is Jewish, and that changes everything. This podcast is an extension of Messiah Magazine, available at messiahmagazine.org. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave a review along with a five-star rating wherever you're listening now. Today's podcast was hosted by myself, Jacob Franzak, along with Damian Eisner. Our executive producer is Boaz Michael, and the editor-in-chief is Daniel Lancaster. This episode was directed and edited by Jeremy Schoenwald. Original music was written and performed by Joshua Aaron. The show notes for Messiah Podcast were edited by Candy Bishop and are available at messiahpodcast.org. If you are interested in learning more about the Bible from a Messianic Jewish perspective, check out Torah Club, which is an international network of small study groups who meet weekly to study the Bible together from a Messianic Jewish perspective. To start a club or join a club, go to TorahClub.org. Until next time, Shalom. Let his word cover you and me Like the waters cover the sea Let his love cover you and me Like the waters cover the sea